Hi, I'm Sonia Jean Killebrew, and this is Black America and COVID, an oral history project. I started this project during Black History Month of 2022 because I wanted to provide a platform for Black Americans to share their stories about living, working, and or going to school during the COVID-19 pandemic. I also wanted to provide a space for people to memorialize someone who is a Black American who sadly lost their life during the COVID-19 pandemic. I was inspired by the work of Zora Neale Hurston, author and anthropologist, to record the experiences of Black Americans in their own voices. My goal is to get my recordings into museums, such as the Smithsonian Museum of African American History and Culture, or the Schomburg, or the Library of Congress's Folklife Museum. I'll share a little bit about me and my family history, and then I'll speak to my guests. I'm a Black American. My dad was African American and Indigenous American. His ancestors were enslaved in Georgia. In fact, we still have our family's slave name, which is Kilbrew. My dad, Dr. Terrence Kilbrew, met my mom in graduate school at the New School in New York when they were both earning their master's degrees in psychology. And I'm a fourth generation teacher. So my mother is a retired New York City teacher. My grandmother was a teacher on the island of Jamaica for 20 years and then in New York for 20 years. My great-grandmother was a teacher in Jamaica up until she got married. She was the daughter of an Irish woman and a black man. She stopped working after she got married because it wasn't considered respectable for a married woman to continue working in the late 1800s. And ironically, my mother began teaching long after she got married in the late 1900s. So without further ado, I'm excited to speak with my guest today. My name is Peter Charles Bright. Peter Charles, um, I live in Brooklyn. I'm from Brooklyn. I grew up in Crown Heights. I live in Williamsburg. And do you identify as Black or Caribbean or African-American? Um, I'd say Black, but I think over the past couple of years, it's become more evident that Black is the name the police call you when they need you. Mm. You know what I mean? So there's the, cult, the idea of cultural Blackness, right? There's the idea of ethnic Blackness, and then there's just phenotypic Blackness, but there's also judicial Blackness. So I think... Uh, you know, there's times when I'm like, yeah, that black, yes. But other times I try to be, you know, as human as possible without delineation, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Wow. And oh, and what's your ancestry? Um, both of my parents are from Jamaica. So I'm first born American, Jamaican American. Thank you. And now I'm really excited to hear you talk about what your life was like during the pandemic. If you want to talk about living and working, and if you don't mind starting 2021 and just going through to, I mean, 2020, starting 2020 and then going through the present day. Yeah, no problem. Well, I remember in March, um, I didn't remember the date, but I had to check. Uh, March, 2020, I had a closing on a Friday 
And I think that weekend was the was like the beginning of the lockdown. And um, it was a big closing, like 2.3 million. I work in real estate, 2.3 million or something. And I was like, okay, you know, this is a good start to the year. Let's see what happens. And I had another client that was looking for a rental around that time. And we had a couple showings before they started locking stuff down. We signed a lease before they started locking stuff down. And then I had a store, well, actually a, a not-for-profit that rented retail space in bed And we kind of ironed everything out before things locked down. So again, this is Q1. So I'm looking like, hey, you know, one rental, one uh, sale and a, a commercial lease. It's going to be an interesting year. And then everything just stopped professionally um, because, you know, we couldn't go outside. You can't, you can't really do much business if you can't go outside. Um, and then I'd say it's a combination of uh, like the disaster recovery, um, pandemic related unemployment is what was making my income work. And the fact that daycare was closed, I have well, I had in 2020 only one daughter um, and uh, that daycare cost, not having that was a lifesaver because it's quite expensive. And then, um, you know, my wife was able to work from home. Mm -hmm. So basically, you know, I had, I'm trying to remember. Yeah, I had daddy duty in the morning and then the afternoon, I don't remember when, actually when I was, when I started, I think it wasn't until July that we could show in person. But there was a time when I was working in the morning, watching the baby in the morning and we basically take the ferry, because we live in Williamsburg and go to like Dumbo or LIC and just be outside. And it was nice to have that time, um, which I would have missed uh, having her in daycare and, and, and being working. So. That was definitely a, a, a positive, being able to spend that amount of quality face-to-face -face time uh, with my daughter and developing some routines and habits and uh, memories. So I, I definitely enjoyed that. Um, but again, it wasn't until July that I could start showing really again. Um, I was able to make stuff happen. I remember we had to have people fill out COVID disclosures before you could show anything. Some people would complain, some people wouldn't. Um, and, you know, there are fewer people looking, so the people who are looking are generally more serious. Mm. And I think, you know, a lot of my day, I'm remembering now, was like Zooms. So we had, we had Zoom trainings, which was part market, you know, dynamics, but also keeping a batch of independent contractors who are <laughs> not able really to work. Uh, engaged and adapting because we had, I mean, the system changed a lot in the sense that, you know, people don't waste your time as much, you know, you're not in the streets figuring things out. So you have to do more um, before you go outside with your client, um, which is something that I always strive to do just in the interest of efficiency. Mm -hmm. um, but that became more normal uh, going forward, you know, closing in, in COVID, closing the sales transactions, you know, the broker is really just there to get their check because everything, all, all our work is done. So mm -hmm. if we sit around for 30 minutes to an hour to three hours, 
there's really nothing for us to do but keep the mood light and you know make sure there's no no derailing. Um, but for the most part, all we need to do is get the check at the end. So doing away with having to commute with that, I mean, it, it took away some of the uh, feeling of completion when you actually do a deal. And also if you can't be there with your client, you know, there's a certain lack of finality mm -hmm. like um, with it, but you know, still, still do deals. Um, really everything is a blur. I have to think I'm better when I'm looking at my pictures. Um, 2021, May, 2021, I had my second daughter. Oh, congratulations. Then, thank you. Um, I mean, it was not a COVID baby. It wasn't, <laughs> COVID wasn't a party. But um, then my older daughter went back to daycare, maybe June 2021. And she's been in for the most part since. Um, I guess having, having her go back to school was good because you realize it's, it's she's pre-K. But even daycare, the amount of engagement is important um, with other kids for socialization purposes. So mm -hmm. while I was happy to have time with her, I realized I couldn't give her everything that mm -hmm. the child ideally needs in terms of interaction. So I was happy for her to go back, but I was like missing our you know morning routine. Um, mm -hmm. But it was kind of nice to be able to go into the office um, I went to the office a couple, a bunch of times, um, you know, had discount coffee because <laughs> they're trying to get people in the stores. Um, you know, at that point, trains were normal, ferry was normal in the sense that it wasn't crazy. So nothing was packed, the city wasn't packed. You can kind of enjoy moving around, you know, once you got used to having a mask, which I didn't really have that much of an issue with. Mm -hmm. um, as far as wearing it. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I think work-wise, 2021 production-wise was good. Um, you know, you had a lot of people that made money during the pandemic. Either they're able to work from home and continue making their salary without the commute cost and without the nightlife cost and also possibly with some passive investments or active stock investments. So there are people making moves um, and the market came back very quickly. Um, you know, I have some clients that were, had outgrown their current space uh, in condo life and went from two beds to two family townhouses. And so you saw a lot of that, people looking for outdoor space, people looking for extra space, like work from home made the need for something like a dining area or home office more important. Mm -hmm. um, people looking for kind of in-between space. I mean, a lot of the press was talking like, oh, 10% of the city left. And I don't think it was even that, it's maybe 5%, but you know, places like 57th and 11th high rise building that's filled with young professionals, mostly from out of state, new to New York, they could have gone home and, and went remote. So. Mm those places may have emptied out. So certain people's, you know, swimming pools, you know, their, their social circles may have thinned out, but, you know, a lot of the city was here and definitely a lot of the black and brown members of the city were here and did not leave, could not leave and could not even take off work. Mm. You know, it's kind of like if you're going out 
to work and you see who's making the sandwich or who's pouring the coffee or who's delivering packages or who's standing at the front door of the building, commercial or otherwise, office or residential, it was largely, you know, 75%, I'd say, black, brown, adjacent, black, oh. brown, ethnic. So, you know, there's a kind of a two lives. You know, also my mom is elderly. She lives in Crown Heights and I live in Williamsburg. So we have, you know, a lot of people ordering packages, myself included, Amazon. And, you know, I listened to your podcast about delivery groceries. And we did that a couple of times, which we hadn't done before. But, you know, for my mom, who was in, you know, kind of a building that had a mixed attitude towards the virus. I had to think about her health and who she was potentially exposed to based on, you know, whether they had religious belief in not getting a vaccine or not wearing masks or if they had a social distrust of medicine and vaccines. Mm -hmm. So I really had to make sure that we stayed away as much as possible because of um, our uh, adjacent to the virus through children and you know other uh, people that my mom wasn't in contact with. But I also had to think about who my mom might be in contact with. And then also as an elderly retired woman, you know, she had a close friend pass away uh, through complications from the virus and that even though the person was not in New York, losing that person had an effect, I think, on my mom. <clears throat> because you start to think about who you can reach out to, even if they're not people you can see. And, you know, the older you get, I think the smaller your circle gets. So if one person goes, that's 15% of your circle, it has an effect. Yeah. And not being able to maintain a routine, you know, not having, you know, the ability to move about definitely has an effect. Yeah. You know, I'm curious since you work in real estate, I spoke to someone yesterday who bought a house and she said, I think she missed, was it 60 deals? Cause people were coming with cash, like in terms of buying, did you witness a lot of that? People um, having to put in many offers to get the house they wanted? 60. That really depends. That sounds like New Jersey, but um yeah, in the city, it was definitely not 60. In 2020, I had a very good price co-op, you know, not a crazy, under 700K, uh, not a crazy board, and it was just sitting. And then all of a sudden, in maybe September or, or August, when the doors opened up again, someone just came and made an offer. Um, and, you know, because it had been sitting, we negotiated and we had to but it was not a ton of competition. Oh. I mean, um, come 2021, Q1 2021, there's a ton of competition all across the board because rates were low. People that you know were able to save some money um, with the low rates, first movers got, got deals because um, mm. the price was still kind of, the, the activity hadn't been there. So the prices were a little soft. People can negotiate. And you're getting all-time low rates um, now. You know, post twenty—I mean, twenty twenty-one. I'd say June, July. I think, or when I had my townhouse closings, 
And we were looking from probably October, 2020. Um, things were still sitting. Townhouse market is different because you want, do you want a duplex over a rental? Do you want a triplex over a rental? Do you, you know, there's a bunch of layout questions that can make a property unsuitable mm -hmm. for your needs. Mm -hmm. But when you find something that you like, there were, when you go to the open house, there were 10 to 50 people there, depending on the price point. Mm -hmm. So if it was kind of under average price wise, you could have- Is that me? Oh my God, sorry, it's go ahead. You can have a lot of people there and if it was aggressively priced, you wouldn't really have anybody there and it would sit. Um, but, you know, by the time we made the offers, we were at ask or slightly over ask just because I knew the properties were suitable for my client to the extent that finding a replacement wouldn't have worked out, mm. you know? So you had people paying at ask, slightly over ask to get the right piece. And people that were looking over a certain price point could be getting a discount, a um, sizable discount because the price was based on a different kind of market exuberance. So, I mean, it basically, you know, people, people always get the sound bites from the news about real estate, but it really depends on the location, obviously, but not just the location, the property type. The submarket, you know, you could be in Manhattan, but Harlem is not moving the same as downtown. Mm. You know, far West Chelsea is not moving the same as East Village. Some place that is like, you know, right by office. You know, if people aren't going to the office, then there's no action. There's no reason to be that close. There's less activity. Mm. But places like you know in Brooklyn, where you get a little bit more space for your money, or you have more of a vibrant. Uh, retail community just because it's not so based on um commuters and tourists then um those places are the ones that were winning thank you for explaining that i didn't realize there's so many variables so that makes yeah. sense yeah no there's always a ton of variables mm. oh and um one question that i asked is did you sadly lose anyone during the pandemic I lost a uncle, well, cousin in Jamaica and an auntie in Florida. Mm -hmm. And that's all I directly lost. Yeah, I'm um, sorry. Yeah, um, thank you. But, um, you know, you could just see, for me, it was more seeing the how the, the stress, like, uh, diluted into society. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm thinking of like a Long Island iced tea. <laughs> and you know how, you know, there's a part where it's more condensed with the brown from the Coca-Cola or whatever. I'm going to get off that metaphor. But, you know, Black and brown communities, I think they had more of a stress because they were taking the train, a lot of people, and again, not black and brown community, black and brown working class, middle class communities. Right. Um, I think the lens of race, um, you know, is always going to be present in America, but the lens of class um, between white collar, blue collar, like, can you work from home? Can you work mm -hmm. on a computer? That really became huge. And so for people that had financial insecurity that were not self-employed 
or had financial security, you know, and could the hours that they needed, but maybe couldn't get enough support otherwise that were really dependent on, on stimulus checks. And I don't know what in between, if they couldn't get unemployment, then, you know, that's a stress that, you know, in New York, and I mean, I'm speaking kind of in a wide manner, I think it was felt most by black and brown people. Yeah. You know, obviously there are working class, blue collar, white people in New York City, but their visibility <laughs> as a monolith is uh, much less prominent, um, especially in Brooklyn and Manhattan, the parts where I, I'm, I'm mostly in North Brooklyn, North, north of Empire, you know, central Brooklyn. So those are black and brown communities and obviously they're mixed, but, um, you know, I wasn't in South Brooklyn. I wasn't in Staten Island. I wasn't in Rockaway. I wasn't in, you know, working class, largely working class white neighborhoods to see mm -hmm. the effect. I would assume that it would be the same. I just don't know those communities. Right. No, thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. I think largely the people I've spoken to are in their preferred communities. So I guess, I don't know if you would characterize us as, I don't you know, middle class. I don't know. But. I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't, I think that I know my mom was working class because she was a nanny. Mm -hmm. um, but if you look at income and you think of things from an economic standpoint and not a class standpoint, there's a poverty line. You know, and if you're not in the 90s, if you're not at 40K, you know, in the city, the rents weren't crazy, but you're definitely not middle class. True. <laughs> and True. now you could be making 100K as a family and you're, you're, you're not really middle class, True. you know, based on opportunity. True. So I think, I think, um, when I think of prep, I think of working middle class and working poor. Uh, is what, what we we came from, and I think that working class, working poor, um, was the hardest hit. Because you know, some people, you know, the people that left New York City had the opportunity to leave. You know, if you could go back home where rent is half price or free because your parents have a house, you know, that's great. Be with mm -hmm. your family and stack some money if you could work remotely, but. One, you have to have home ownership. Two, you need to have a remote job. Three, you need to have the money and space to relocate. Mm -hmm. so that's a lot of ifs. You know, people that moved to the suburbs had that option. People that moved to Florida had that option. I see some people that left the country and took a leap of faith. And I think that's awesome. Um, and uh, maybe a lot of people may have had that option, but that's a very difficult option to execute, even if it's not a huge financial um, outlay to go to, you know, the Caribbean or South America and do, do the expat remote work thing. True. But again, so dependent on remote work or at least some kind of influencer, new, new media uh, affinity, which is not, you know, 10% of the city. <laughs> yeah. Know, if you think about, and, and also the, 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 the world that people live in, you know, as we saw with the presidential election, it became intensely segmented. But when you think about, you know, the five to 10 people you talk to regularly, 
you know, I think a lot of people just kind of got into uh, echo chambers, not speaking politically, but just in terms of dilution of percentages. Mm. Could be 70% of something in your world or no, I haven't had anybody in my family die, none of my friends either and nothing like that. You know, because I had friends that had people die. Um, and even if that wasn't me, it was still aware of that. And that still kind of triggers your um, fear, whatever, however you, you process the information. True. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I really appreciate your time. It's, um, it's really important for me to speak. Ideally, I'd like to speak to every Black American, but I'm starting with the people that I know. So thank you so yeah. much for your time. No, not a problem. And, um, yeah, I, again, I, I mean, I think even in co- the conversations and what people talk about, like some people talk about not being able to eat out, not being able to go like have fun, not being able to like see friends in a group, you know, and that is still, you know, the uh, miss of leisure. Mm and not the, the lack of work, you know, mm. or the, the tightness of finances or the stress of, you know, uh, work and worry, mm. you know, insecurity, health insecurity, housing insecurity, financial insecurity. And I think, you know, um, more so than race, I think it's class in the sense of disposable income mm. or a requirement to be present. Like who, like when you're in a global pandemic, who is it that's going to work? Mm-hmm. You know, who is it that's, you know, the applause for medical workers. I, I didn't really, I wasn't really for that because it felt like an empty gesture, but recognition, not of the work that people do, but the work that people have to do. Mm. The work that, you know, people can't, or the people who don't have, everybody has a choice, right? But you can choose to starve and be homeless. So, you know, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is people who had to get up and go to work, you know? Yeah. And, and couldn't move and, and couldn't dial in and couldn't Zoom and couldn't even begin to think about dining out because they were thinking about feeding their families. So, and I'm not, I wasn't in the middle of that, you know, so I, I can't really speak to that experience and even being adjacent to families with loss <clears throat> and, you know, part of a family that had a different experience based on location and general um, demographic makeup. Um, I didn't have that experience. For mm-hmm. me, it was, you know, okay, I have time to serve with my daughter. I'm nervous, but we have time and we are paying our rent we didn't get any rebate or abatement. I think we got, I think we were late once because we didn't know what was going to happen. Um, but for the most part, we uh, carried on. Mm-hmm. We adapted because we had the ability um, and the flexibility with my wife working from home as well, mm-hmm. dual income family and me having closings before the pandemic and, and pandemic unemployment throughout, you know, we're able to maintain. And then once things opened up in, in 2021, it was a busy year um, because there's a lot of pent up 
real estate demand. So I was very busy. Um, doesn't mean I've not 60 deals, closing 60 deals in New York is a lot of money, yeah. <laughs> but closing five, you know, five to 10 million is um, the year after a global pandemic and not even after, cause we're still in it in essence. Right. Um, that was possible. And there were people who were really doing a lot of deals. Um, but after spending time with my family and I always have the work-life balance at the forefront of my head. It's like, I wanna help your family find a home, but not to the extent that I'm not home to be with mine. Mm. So I don't, I, I mean, I don't miss things that I'm not willing to miss mm-hmm. unless the opportunity is something that can't wait. Mm-hmm. So I think you also have a, <clears throat> for those who did have the option, I think you have a crystallization of uh, what matters and who matters uh, most. Right. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time, PC. I look forward to... hmm? Not a problem. Yeah. I look forward to everyone gathering together once I get our recordings into an archive so we can all meet in person with our families and loved ones and just celebrate life. So thank you. Yeah. I think, um, uh, I should know, but I don't know. I'm pretty sure it was Cornell West when I was undergrad. They say, show me a million black people, I'll show you a million different ways to be black. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of relegation of people into monoliths as if people all vote in one way or all think one way, all eat one way, all whatever. That's just not true. So I think it's important that whenever you have something that is under the heading of black, that there is diversity represented within that, um, that really fills out the depth of that blackness or negritude or whatever term you want to use. <laughs> I agree. That's why I ask people how they identify, because I think a lot of people who are not black assume that Black people are are fine with saying we're African American when there's a lot of Caribbean American or people like I I interviewed someone who said he's like I'm American, <laughs> like period. Yeah. So yeah, I'm glad you said that. We're not a monolithic community. We're very diverse. Yeah, but even even that, I mean, asking someone if they identify as black, you can't really say no. Mm. If you say no, it seems like you're hiding from something, but. I mean, who made that decision? Like repurposing a word doesn't erase the, the history of it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't need to be a, 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 a vulgar word, like the N-word. Um, you know, white people aren't white. <laughs> right. You know, they, they're Europeans who were largely forced out of their land by other Europeans and came here and benefited from a racist system you right. know, going, going way back, right? Obviously still right. today, you know, there's a lot of people who are considered white that if you looked at their cousins, they wouldn't be considered white unless they were pit against something else. And I think, yeah, we are more than an other. Absolutely. I, I think that, that that is not a, a point that's uh, articulated enough or supported enough. Like I didn't grow up eating collard greens because my family's from Jamaica, but I also didn't grow up eating provisions because I didn't like it. And my family's still from Jamaica, you know? 
Like yeah. there's, there's things that you um, accept and wear and there's other things that people within that same quote unquote monolith will challenge you on. And that is something else that a lot of people don't think about, but that's for your next, your next expose. I agree. Exploring blackness. Growing up, my mother cooked a lot of yellow lamb and green banana and cassava. So like, because I don't have Jamaican accent. So when we go to Jamaican restaurants, they're like, oh, you know, cassava? And I'm like, yeah, my mom's Jamaican. I grew up eating it. So, right. People have a lot of uh, preconceptions about who we are based on even how we sound or where our parents are from. But I would love to explore blackness maybe in another podcast and what that means. Yeah, I mean, I think you have enough of a network and you have enough of people that are smart and like to talk that probably don't get to talk about the things that really matter to them. Because <laughs> it seems like either you would talk about it in therapy if you went to therapy, but then you can't really talk about, you know, everyday stress <laughs> all the time in that sense. Or you talk about it in your community, but like you said, our communities become more diverse and more focused like it's a diverse 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 makeup ethnically racially national nationality wise of co-workers mm-hmm. so it's a professional forum it's not really a chance to speak about you know identity politics necessarily outside of buzzwords and whatever's trending Absolutely. so i think there are a lot of people that you could get 15 to 30 minutes from um, in various industries, um, but it's not something that people generally talk about with their families or even with their closest friends. So you, the topic of identity within an identity is always going to be a um, interesting and problematic conversation. I agree. Years ago, I don't know, I think like 15 years ago in my 20s, I was dating this black guy and I'd never seen Friday. Like there's a bunch of Friday movies and he's like, I'm going to revoke your black card. And I'm like, just because I'm black doesn't mean I have to see the Friday movie. But, you know, stuff like that culturally that people don't think about that they think, oh, every black American has seen this movie. Like, no. <coughs> there's programming, media programming on all sides. Yeah. So it's, it's a lot easier to put people in boxes if they say, yeah, I think I belong over here. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, I will. I, I'm going to start um, putting together ideas, but I, I definitely want to interview people just to talk about blackness. Um, thank you. And I will reach out to you probably later in the year about that. Okay. You have my number. Cool. Well, thank right. you so no much problem. for your time and have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too. Have a great weekend. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to my conversation on this episode of Black America and COVID, an oral history project. If you enjoyed the episode, then please give it five stars wherever you listen to podcasts. The more five stars the podcast has, the more visible it is, the more access I have to people who would like to share their story living, working, and or going to school during the COVID-19 pandemic. If you are a Black American and you would like to share your experience with me, then email me at sonykillaroo at gmail.com. The 
emails in the show notes of the podcast, or direct message me through my Instagram account, Black America and COVID, all one word, all lowercase. If you are a non-Black American and you would like to memorialize the life of a Black American sadly lost during the COVID-19 pandemic, then email me as well. This episode was written, produced, and audio engineered by me, Sonia Jean Killebrew, podcast host and executive producer. Thanks for listening to my oral history project, Black America and COVID.